welcome to the second episode of ESG Out Loud. In today's podcast, we're speaking with Bev Shah, CEO and co-founder of City Hive, and Paolo Tatiki, a teaching professor at the University College London School of Management and expert in sustainable corporations. But before that, I've got Natalie Kenway, Global Head of ESG Insight with me. And we're going to be talking about a few of the biggest uh, stories or news of the past month. We're going to be talking SFDR, AGM season and a bit about diversity. So let's start with the very exciting and not at all confusing uh, new regulation that's come in, the SFDR. What have you been finding, Natalie? Again, I think with all of these regulation or new legislation comes out, it's kind of a mixed response. It's people are ple- pleased to see that sort of the EU are moving in this direction, making it um, legislating some definitions around what these funds are doing. So basically, let me just give you an overview of what what it means. So SFDR is the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations. So it means that asset managers need to disclose on their websites which categories their products fall into. There are three categories. So Article 9 is funds that have specifically have sustainable goals as their objective. Article eight is those who have environmental or social characteristics, but do not have them as an overarching objective. And article six is funds that are not ESG basically. Um, So yes, a step in the right direction in terms of the investors that should now be able to look at a fund, see whether it's article eight or or nine, if they're looking at responsible investments, that's the only areas they want to look at and um, decide which ones would better be a better fit for them but if they really want I think people are calling the article nine the darker green which reminds me of the old um, very old ethical funds of when I first started <laughs> this industry um, or, or if they want article eight where it's not the overarching objectives but there are some environmental and social characteristics so yes with people some of the words that have been used is it's truly welcomed it's a landmark move it's a, um, a game changer for the industry but Again, as with all of these things, there are some people that are unhappy. We've had some people say it's vague, imprecise, open interpretation. So although it's a stepping stone in the right direction, it could be the source of more confusion as well. But I mean, overall, I think, yes, it's, it's very much a positive for the industry. And even though it's only applying to sort of European countries at the moment or those operating in European countries, we think that you, the UK and other regions will follow suit. As, as somebody else has said, it could be like MIFID where it sets the benchmark for the rest of the world. Yeah. So yes, um, and it's, it's also this is only level one. This sort of, It gets ramped up again next year in January, level two. Asset managers need to start preparing for that when um, they, they need to be a bit more specific in, in their disclosures and need to identify the mandatory principal adverse impacts or PAIs just because this industry loves an acronym. Yeah yeah I mean welcome but confusing does seem to be the main message doesn't it and we've we've published Mm. a few things about this you know and some explanatory pieces and so on but do you get in touch with us if there's anything you'd like us uh, to see covering on this issue or any any explainers that we can um Source, you know, uh, would be helpful because obviously this is going to be a big focus uh, now for um, for a while. Yeah, I think what would be interesting is um, the, the the SFDR of saying this is should be a deterrent for greenwashers. People will need to really disclose what they're up to, but. I do wonder until we get this the next level in whether it really will unearth the, the greenwashers. So that would that was that is something I would 
be interesting to find out what our readers think on that. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and yes, you mentioned before that we've got the AGM season coming up and I know you've um, been writing a fair bit about Tesco's and HSBC. We've had a few um, examples of best practice. We, uh, we were quite early out with some of those in January in our digital magazine. Um, and then we've had Share Action sharing some of the best practice that they've seen when it comes to engagement and uh, stewardship policies and, uh, and using votes and things like that. Uh, a couple of things that they mentioned was uh, the importance of embedding responsible investment practices and uh, you know the, the firms that do that are really coming out well. So they mentioned BMB Paribas in their latest kind of analysis of uh, firms. And they also, highlighted and an investment partnership for its client proxy voting policies. So if anyone's looking to sort of make their uh, policies more robust and uh, ramp up their engagement, as will be a concern in the coming months, then these are kind of good, uh, good examples that can be looked at. In terms of things that are already happening, yes, we've uh, covered the um, shareholder resolution at Tesco on health concerns. And Tesco has now committed to some uh, bigger healthy food targets for its sales. And just uh, recently as well, HSBC has said that they will put a climate-based resolution to a vote at its AGM, which is huge for uh, shareholders who have been negotiating with the bank for, for quite some time. So there are things happening in this area and one to keep an eye on yes and as well as the AGM season coming up we also have the gender pay gap reports and obviously in March we've been celebrating International Women's Day and we have a very special diversity focused issue um, of our digital magazine coming up at the end of March so lots to look out for in that um, we have also partnered up with Reboot, which is the a campaign to spotlight the journeys of successful ethnic minority professionals who have risen to senior positions in the corporate world. So look out for the fortnightly interviews that we'll be putting up on the website. Really excited to be a part of that. We've also been running the gender diversity focused stories every day um, in the past two weeks. You know, there's, there's a lot going on and there is, still a lot more to be done um i've been to i don't even know how many events and so forth on this over the past few years and you know things are happening but maybe not enough and not quickly enough and you know it's only been five years or so for me but there's people having these conversations still 30 years on who often say at these events that they're having the same conversations it's not okay to be kind of lazy on this and just submit things and then move on and wait till the next year. Things really do have to start moving. Uh, I mean, I think we found the same with some of our International Women's Day coverage, to be honest. You know, we had a story about uh, the appointment of women non-executive directors as a kind of way of, of, of balancing boards, but, you know, those positions are still... Um, lower paid and less involvement than executive positions so you know as with anything in ESG the people paying lip service it's going to be clear or looking for quick solutions it's going to be clear quite quickly that those aren't going to work yeah I mean just on the sort of press releases and stuff I think we both had that conversation where we were 
waiting for the fresh angles to come in, the new angles to come in. And it, there weren't really any, were there? I mean, there may be the odd few, but I think we just need to move past this conversation of what we, I think there is an understanding of why diversity is best beneficial to firms. We need to move on to the how and actually see the plans in action, the progress. We want to see groups actually moving along on this and not keep talking about the why. I think that's more well understood now. Yeah, and it's all part of transparency as well, isn't it? You know, show us how exactly your business is uh, making these things happen. So, I mean, I, I don't really want to read another press release that mentions the McKinsey reports, to be honest. We all know the McKinsey reports by now, don't we? Anyway, there is a lot of positive stuff happening in this area, though, definitely. Uh, we don't want to be all doom and gloom about it. And coming up now, we have an interview with CEO and co-founder Bev Shah and she's going to be talking about some of the more exciting things happening in the industry to address some of these issues. The 8th of March is International Women's Day, so we thought for this edition of the podcast, it would be remiss of us to not talk about diversity, inclusion and women in finance in general. If you work in asset management, you will know that this is a course being championed by City Hive, the network for change in the industry, and its CEO and founder, Bivini Shah, since launch in 2016. So I first met Bev for coffee in that year and she talked to me about the old boys network in the city, how much women were missing out on in the investment management sector, simply because they were women. And it really ignited something in me. Um, I'd been a journalist for a while at that point, but as when I started, any press releases that we received about female fund managers or women as investors, these were just dismissed. The attitude in the office and across the industry was it didn't matter. It's not an issue that people care about. And it bugged me. But as a young journalist, I didn't feel there was much I could do about it personally. So that first conversation with Bev was really refreshing. And I realised that, yes, there could be some change and I could be a part of it. I'm so glad that I have been on this arrived with championing diversity with Bev over those years. In such a short space of time, the City Hive team have worked hard and collaborated with many investment firms on the need for change in approach to diversity, talked to them about the benefits of diversity and why if you ignore this, you will simply be left behind. So I'm delighted to be chatting to Bev today. Thank you for joining me. Hi Nat, it's nice to see you. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned before, my only worry with this interview is that you and I will go on for hours about this and it would be hard to keep this uh, a short meeting. But we've had so many lively conversations about this over the years, haven't we? So, first of all, I guess, sort of set the scene for me. What do you think has been, we have seen some slight progress in the asset management industry um, and society as a whole on sort of their attitude to gender. What do you think about that progress, though? I think... It could be a lot quicker. <laughs> um, there seems to be this idea and perception that there's a silver bullet to this, that everyone wants a one size fits all solution that's quick and that covers every form of diversity um, and is global for their organisations. But they don't realise that this is something that needs investment, it needs to be a business priority. Um, and you really need to put in the scaffolding in your organization and in society for women, because we do make up 51% of the population. Once you have that scaffolding and framework in place, it will support all forms of diversity to thrive. So I think in the last five years, we've seen a lot of talk, a lot of awareness raising, which is great. 
but the action and the investment needed doesn't seem to be following following that talk there's a lot of commitments and we see diversity as being you know a thing that we need to do but the the numbers don't seem to be stacking up the the gender pay gap um isn't ticking in the right direction the reporting of the gender pay gap isn't even happening so there's a lot still that needs to be done if we want to um I suppose, authentically meet the words that are being said by senior leadership. Great. And um, yes, my next question was going to be about the sort of gender pay gap reports. They are traditional. Well, they are supposed to be reported in April. Um, we had the chat last year about companies being kind of let off the hook with the sort of it was it was, I guess, at the brunt of the pandemic. But what, what are you expecting to see in the reports this year? Do you think we'll see some more shifts? And also, I know that you're doing some work around the gender pension gap. So if you could explain that, it'd be great. Yeah, so the gender pay gap is an interesting one. It's a, it's a very crude number at the end of the day, you know, just looking at the ratio of a male to female pay on average in aggregate in your organisation. And you just have to walk around the city to figure out what the number will be, right? At the back of the fag pack, calculation will tell you we aren't going to come out looking great. I think reporting scares people in the industry because the numbers aren't going to be great. But for us, it feels like the reporting is the first stage of just accepting that you have a problem. If you measure it, moves. And if you have a number, you can then commit to changing that number publicly to all your stakeholders. You can put your hands up and say, yes, you know, I'm taking ownership of this. I'm accountable for this. I'm going to behave transparently and show you where I am. And then we're going to move forward. Um, a lot of it's around the communication of, of what actions you're going to be take, taking. Because if you decide just to bury your head in the sand about it, and not telling anyone about it, you'll get caught out because your competitors might be. Um, and when it comes to stakeholders, more and more investment consultants, asset owners are asking questions around diversity. They are keen to know what you're doing. And gender is the only public one at the moment. You know, ethnicity pay gap reporting is coming. But it's very easy to see, you know, just by looking on people's websites um, and public information around, you know, how many women you have senior in senior positions, how many women you have as fund managers. Um, so you can't hide behind not just not reporting I'm just not going to look at it you know um, because you have to we have to own it if we own it then we can move forward so I would like to see companies report whether they have to or not um, because eventually they might be forced to whether it's mandated by regulators or whether it's mandated by your customers you know those those are two elements that you can't get away from um, but there's no expectations that you know the numbers are going to be any better look the pandemic has had a massive impact on women we know this it's not just homeschooling it's all the responsibilities around home that have landed on women's shoulders more cooking more cleaning more worry you know um and it is yeah. it is unfortunately majority being you know this now right it lands on our shoulders um Dads do help out, of course they do, but they still end up being the hero in the same way they were always the hero in the office when, you know, dad leaves early to pick up the kid. It's just the way society has constructed our gender roles, which will mean that we will end up losing. And we are already seeing the pipeline of talent in the middle that we need to retain and develop 
stepping away and saying I can't handle this I can't do this I can't do it all you know the have it all debate has become the do it all right for for a lot of women so the industry is really going to have to invest and focus on ensuring we don't take too many steps backwards on this because it will take a lot longer to then move forward um and then we had the gender pension gap that you mentioned, which um, actually it's nice to see this International Women's Day. A lot of people have been focusing on the number and the number in real terms is a differential of 100,000 between a man and a woman retiring on a private pension of um, at the age of 60. Now, what does that say to me? You know, that says to me, we've left a lot of money on the table as an industry. That's a lot of assets under management. Mm. Um, so you can kind of talk about the societal reasons why um, there's a gender pension gap and of course some of those things are going to be childcare and you know taking career breaks and women taking nurturing roles there are going to be those things yeah but then on the other side we've never sold to women we've never created product for women we've never looked at women as a customer base mm. we've basically neglected 51% of the population when we as an industry should be servicing absolutely everybody, not just high net worth, not just, you know, males, financial advisors, whoever, we should be servicing everyone. And that is, that is commercially an imperative because the, the alternative is, is those people are now going to start turning towards the disruptors. Mm. You know, the industry is already facing so many challenges from regulators because of fees, um, the scandals that are coming out there tarnishing us, no names I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the, the big rise in passives. All it needs is a couple of disruptive apps or, you know, something that's going to actually make women go, oh, actually, I can put my money there. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a redefining of what value is. You know, in our industry, we seem to think that value is just um, the fees that you're going to be paying and the return you're going to get. Well, it is. It isn't, is it? Like sustainable impact investing is a value. Someone is showing that they care more about impact than they are about actually the total return that they're going to be getting. And that's that they're showing you that they care more about that. That's the value to them. Mm. That's what we need to think about. It's about the products we create, the way we market, all of that stuff. And then you have a very, very happy head of distribution because all of a sudden you've got, you diversified your revenue streams, you know, your assets under management have gone up in this new, you know, we're about to face a massive bear market. We're all going to go into retention mode. Um, you just created a whole new revenue stream. Mm. Um, and that's, that's what I think that, you know, people talk about the gender pension gap. And again, it becomes that awareness raising exercise, but actually it doesn't impact the majority in our industry because it's predominantly male in our industry. So when you kind of flip it on its head and you realise it is a commercial imperative, then it might become a little bit more interesting and we might want to actually close it. So what what what, what would you like to see more of in the industry? I mean, we talked a bit about asset managers' approach to women and we've, we've spoken ourselves about advertising that is very rare. It's a man in canoe man on a bike up a mountain and um I mean what what would you like to see more of and what is really frustrating you right now what what's really been your bugbear recently um I think I want to see more of an acceptance that they don't actually know how to fix it yeah it might sound a bit strange but I um, really get that 
we've got to this position because we didn't have the tools and the knowledge and the acceptance um, and even the critical thinking to kind of say we've got a problem. Mm. And it would be really nice to, instead of like kind of handing out accolades and, and awards to everyone for doing such a great job, but five years ago, no one even saw this as a problem. I just think that we need to be really realistic and and I'd love to see senior leadership just say, yeah, I was part of the problem because I caused this. Not for any cynical reason, I just didn't know it was a problem. Um, and this is what I'm going to do. Be really accountable and say, mm-hmm. this is what I'm going to invest. This is what I'm going to do. Um, instead of just talking about it, you know, doing an event yeah. or you really need to put your hand up and I think that's what frustrates me um and I do a lot of panels as you know and and you know often have senior leaders just say they're saying the right thing but often it's the things that impact them again it's it's like I did I did unconscious bias training I learned this it's still about them and it's like need to start broadening our thinking you know we talk about cognitive diversity and having all viewpoints it's this acceptance that we've got this giant blind spot um and it's slightly chicken and egg because if you don't have a diverse workforce or a diverse board how are you going to spot that blind spot in the first place so some of it is around acceptance um yes and then it is really kind of actively trying to change things you know and and the really the way to do that is just being transparent about things um then then you kind of have to right your feet your feet are to blame so to speak and you have to do it yeah I mean it goes back to what you were saying before I mean um, we always hear about the our and our end investors they want transparency and then we have um yeah again not naming any names but companies burying the, the the figures around this or highlighting some figures that make maybe put them in a better light and if they if they did go going back to what you said if they did own it and measure it they would be able to move it so it doesn't make sense to keep saying well this is this is something we're on top of when they're not really they do need to sort of yeah be accountable and you know there's there's amazing journalists like you uh, <laughs> and there are you know champions and activists like me who are not going to keep quiet about this stuff mm-hmm. um so there's no point trying to bury it you know you just need to go again you just walk around the city and you can see we can't do that now because we're in covid but <laughs> in regular times yeah. you know you can see how things um are sliced and diced like, you know you can go to diversity events and you see who's in the room it's people who are diverse because they care about this because it impacts them I want to start to see events that include the the non-diverse the majority in the city so they can understand why it's important I you know I completely get that um it can feel threatening you know if you if you're constantly being told that um the woman or the ethnic minority or someone who's diverse is going to get your job then you will feel nerved about it but that isn't the case, yeah. you know, that isn't happening. There might be a few, you know, lines out there in the press that say we need to do this or we need to have more diverse um, lists. It doesn't mean you're not going to get the job. If you are the best candidate for the role, you will get the job. What you need to accept, however, is you have had lots of opportunities where you probably weren't the best person for the job, but you were the only 
one on the list I think that's the acceptance is diverse people just were never on the list before and we really need to look at our definitions of what merit is what's the best mm. so, um, because that, because actually as a team you don't want everyone who looks the same and thinks the same that isn't the best for your team you want people who think differently we can see that there's been an acceleration in the adoption of remote working so that's a positive not just for women for for everybody um but also we've seen things that have highlighted just how much progress we still need to make i mean we've, we've both had a chat about that that government advert so maybe you can just talk a bit about that for a minute well again it goes back to those blind spots you know when we saw that government ad a um, couple of months ago you know highlighting I think what was it? it was images of women doing all the housework and the dad was sat on the sofa with yeah. the dog child. Yeah, and then the wife looking really, really tired next to her because she's done the <laughs> homeschooling, all that. I mean, it just highlights that actually that advert would have had to go through so many rounds of approval, right? And no one thought for one second that that was a bit wrong. Yet soon the moment they put it out there, mm. there was an outrage over it because it's not how we want to see society it's that role modeling you know mm. it might feel like that advert was very true because actually it was falling on women's shoulders so it probably was more a reflection on um, how society is looking but that's not how we want society to look you know especially as you know so many women do have to work a full day as well you know the reality is we don't live in the 1950s you know we do have to in this current climate two salaries need, are needed often to pay a mortgage you know it's not it's not a luxury to stay at home um so we, so we just need to start thinking about those things a little bit more um yeah how how we are role modeling people um Yes, definitely. I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, the, the conversation has definitely just mo has moved on from just focusing on, on gender. And I know you mentioned that you're working with the Diversity Project on their race and ethnicity work stream. And we've been started running a um, series on ESG Clarity with Reboot, um, shining a light on um, senior leaders in the industry um, from ethnic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. So, um, what would it, you you would you like to what would you like to see these projects achieve? Well, we obviously through the pandemic we saw the rise of um, we saw the kind of focus on ethnic minorities grow. So because of the 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 things that happened in the states in 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 the summer last year with George Floyd, the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, we had the incident in New York from with the lady who worked for an asset management company, which was, you know, absolutely dreadful. We've then had um, the Green Park report and, you know, the Parker Review showing that there are so few um, black and ethnic minorities who sit on boards bearing in on the FTSE, bearing in mind the FTSE, actually revenues come from um, a global revenue. So, you know, don't have that representation from those multinational companies. Um, so, so the high, you know, there is a more of a light now being shone on ethnic minorities. We actually saw a couple of days ago, um, News International, um, who are owners of The Sun, say they are going to stop using the term BAME, which I'm really pleased to hear because, you know, at the end of the day, we don't fit into a bucket of a B, an A or an ME. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, Asia is a huge continent, very, very diverse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
Um, you can't just call someone just just Asian. There are so many, you know, complexes complexities to it. Like you can't just call someone black. There are complexities to it. People come um, from all different places of origin. Um, they have different socioeconomic backgrounds. So we really need to start looking at things a little bit more intersectionality wise um, at looking at their education. And again, it goes back to what I said about gender. What are you? What bucket do you fit in? You fit into lots of different ones. So um, I'm really pleased to be co-chairing the Race and Ethnicity Workstream for the Diversity Project. Um, Reboot are a part of our, our STEERCO and a part of our awareness works, working group. We are looking at, we've got three other working groups. We were looking at intersectionality. So going across again, dipping into all the other work streams to ensure that the ethnic minority um, experience is heard and we can kind of learn from each other. We've got a, a culture and religion working group, which I think is the probably going to have the toughest job actually of really looking at um, what, what does it mean like distilling this idea of culture when you come into the workplace um and and religion we want to look at how how can we come up with um a framework for different groups which um to look at how how they're impacting the workplace and what i mean by that is for example i can use myself as an example as an in indian woman there are certain traits about me that i think make are, are different from my other colleagues who are maybe white or from other backgrounds i don't tend to um ask for more i don't tend to be very good at negotiating i've never asked for a bigger bonus or a pay rise and i do put that down to a cultural reason you know as as an as an indian woman that's not part of my kind of nurture how i was brought up and what would be great is if organizations realize that when you do um performance reviews or whatever what are the things they should be looking out from from different people from different cultures that's mm -hmm. what we want to give them a framework that actually maybe the way we're working now doesn't fit everyone because of the way they are in terms of how they ask for things um and that that's kind of something that will have a really positive impact on the workplace because we then won't end up losing talent we'll hopefully hold on to it and that talent will find its voice to say actually i do want to go for that promotion um i never would have asked for that stuff but um, I mean, City Hive are working on the launch of a kite mark, um, looking at corporate culture and inclusion. Can you talk a bit about that? And also uh, the webcast that we're going to be working with you on. I'm very excited about. So we wanted to create something that would put the feet to the flames, I think is what, what we've been told it does. Mm -hmm. We wanted to create a kite mark with a small K that would demonstrate where an organization is in their journey to improve and evolve their corporate culture to then enable them to be diverse and, and inclusive. Um, because diversity and inclusion goes beyond just um, how many diver diverse kind of staff members you've got. It also seeps into the S and the G of ESG and all the external things you're doing, like, you know, are you working to close the gender pension gap, for example, it all kind of evolves around that so our act mark um named to be confirmed post the consultation is really looking to help stakeholders all all fund buyers all those with a vested interest from actually the retail customer upwards all the way up to the asset owner and mm -hmm. the most sophisticated 
investment consultants as a pillar of their due diligence. Uh, corporate culture has always been something that's missed off due diligence, actually, you know, because it's really difficult to, uh, other than um, shiny websites and heavily audited um, accounts, it, it's difficult to get under the under the hood of an organisation. But between my kind of background of being a multi-manager and looking at ratings and Mandy Kirby, who is my chief strategist at City Hive, um, who was in the leadership team at the UN-backed PRI. She was um, director of the in entire kind of global accountability framework. We both know how to put something like this together that would then have impact at the end. We are um, we are consulting with lots of groups across the organization or across the industry, including asset owners and investment consultants and, and various um, fund selectors to ensure that it's a really robust it's meaningful. Um, the way it would work is there is a maturity matrix behind it. So we want to evolve people's corporate culture in the right way There's um, to move them along year on year. So as they go through the assessments, they will know where they're headed um, to really future-proof the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very excited to be doing a load of kind of educational what what do we call them, webcasts, webinars with, with, with you and with Morningstar and various other people in the industry to really actually educate on why this really impacts the investment making. Mm. I mean, look, we've seen some notable scandals in the last few weeks and about certain mm. asset management characters, no <laughs> names mentioned, um, and you just think that actually proper due diligence had been done on the investment management company they wouldn't have passed any sort of screen. Yes. Um, yeah, and the sad thing is that what's happened recently is not the only one. We've had quite a few over the past few years, haven't we? So, I mean, yeah, it's... Um, I'm not saying it's going on all the time, but, yeah, it would be it would be, would be nice if this was avoided. Yeah, and whenever I hear about these things happening, I get so angry because I just feel like shouting, that's not my industry. You know, and I think a lot of us feel that way. I think a lot of us are proud to work in the investment management industry. I think we're proud of the work that we do in ensuring the hopes and dreams of ordinary people, you know, and all it takes is like one or two characters to really publicly damage the work, the really good work we do. And that's not our industry. That's not, you know, what we do. So, we want to be able to highlight this and have a standard that we are living up to. Um, the ActMark is all about looking at the internal and the external behaviours of firms, and it will hopefully stop the the greenwashing of DNI um, and help companies really meet their sustainable responsibilities around this. Mm. It's just as important as the environmental work that's gone on. Um, over the decades we now need to start looking at the s and the g which is just as important yes definitely well esg out loud listeners can um tune into the first webcast sometime in q2 thank you very much for joining me bev thanks Nat. today i'm delighted to be chatting to paolo titiki a teaching professor at the university college london school of management and expert in sustainable corporations Paolo is so passionate about this topic, he has written and recently had published the book Corporate Sustainability in Practice, in which he proposes a new definition of corporate sustainability for the modern age.
but I'll let him share all the details with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, all the way from Italy, Paolo. Thank you, Natalie, for having me. It's a pleasure. So can you set the scene for us? Why um, have you decided to write this book? What, what led you to look into corporate sustainability? So I started uh, uh, working in this uh, uh, field uh, of uh, sustainability about 10 years ago. And uh, uh, today I'm very active in this field uh, uh, in terms of research, teaching, uh, but also uh, consulting uh, uh, companies around the world uh, who are keen to uh, develop more sustainable business models and, and strategies. Uh, and uh, uh, my perspective on this topic uh, is uh, really the uh, perspective of a strategist. And that is uh, uh, my uh, background. And I guess what led me to uh, writing this book uh, is that uh, um, over uh, the years, uh, I have seen uh, uh, big changes in industry and uh, in the type of uh, uh, projects developed by organizations and in the type of uh, questions that organizations were raising to me. Uh, in particular, uh, I believe uh, 10 years ago, companies uh, were approaching sustainability uh, really from a marketing and communication perspective. Uh, so uh, improving the brand or strengthening the brand from a sustainability perspective was the main driver uh, of their engagement. Uh, while in the last uh, two, three years, I've seen uh, a different behavior. Uh, I see organizations coming to me uh, asking the question, uh, how can we approach sustainability strategically? How can we uh, be sure that everything we do in this uh, space uh, is uh, actually contributing uh, to our competitive strategy and uh, uh, ultimately improving our financial performance? Um, and this, uh, uh, if you want, uh, uh, reflects uh, uh, a maturity, uh, the maturity of the system today. Um, organizations, uh, uh, do understand uh, that uh, sustainability uh, um, as a clear link with financial performance. Um, and they do understand that uh, uh, today is important to integrate sustainability in the business in order to be competitive in the industry. Great. Um, it's really good to hear that corporates are realizing there is this link between sustainability and financial performance and remaining competitive. Um, I understand you have a different de definition for corporate sustainability compared to what has been used in the past. Can you explain that a bit more? Uh, I, I would not uh, necessarily, uh, Natalie, say that it's different, uh, but uh, I guess uh, it's uh, uh, combining uh, some uh, uh, key concepts uh, that uh, have emerged strongly uh, in the recent uh, years. Uh, I don't believe uh, you know, there is uh, one accepted definition of what corporate sustainability is. Uh, and uh, uh, definitely there isn't one in academia. Uh, I mean, uh, as you probably know, you know professors, uh, part of our fun is to write definitions. So <laughs> if you start looking for definitions, you're going to find uh, hundreds of them. Um, but uh, it is, uh, I believe, uh, uh, fair to say uh, that uh, if you look at the way uh, the literature has uh, evolved in this uh, field uh, uh, in the last 20 years, uh, there are definitely some concepts uh, that do define uh, what uh, modern corporate sustainability is. Uh, 
Um, and uh, I guess, you know, we can go back to the 90s and probably, you know, refer to the triple bottom line concept uh, as, as a starting point uh, in this discussion. Uh, then, of course, in the last 20 years, uh, we have seen uh, this uh, uh, acronym uh, of ESG emerging strongly, uh, particularly in the context of the financial community. Uh, but also uh, interesting uh, concepts like the idea of uh, uh, creating shared value. Uh, this is a concept that was, uh, uh, you know, created by uh, uh, Michael Porter uh, and uh, others at uh, uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, um, and uh, it is an interesting concept uh, linking uh, uh, this idea of sustainability to uh, the grand challenges uh, we face in, uh, uh, in society. Uh, and uh, I would say more recently, we hear more and more um, talking uh, of purpose. Uh, and this was you know, one of the uh, key messages uh, um, uh, raised by BlackRock and Larry Fink uh, a number of years ago. Uh, so I kind of argue that uh, these, you know, concepts uh, all together uh, tend to define what, uh, you know, modern corporate sustainability is. Um, and uh, uh, in the definition that you can uh, uh, find in the book, uh, uh, what I say is that corporate sustainability uh, is an integral uh, approach to business. So it's really about strategy uh, and uh, it's really aimed uh, at uh, uh, enhancing a competitive positioning and profitability. I think this is very important. Uh, many definitions uh, um, that have been you know, produced in the past uh, were not uh, emphasizing this profit dimension of sustainability. Uh, and me coming into this conversation as a strategy, uh, as a strategist, uh, I think it is important to uh, um, to kind of put uh, the attention on this aspect that uh, sustainability if uh, approached correctly, uh, can lead to profit, uh, uh, can contribute to a competitive advantage. Uh, and uh, in the definition, I speak about the shared value, I speak about the co-creation practices with stakeholders. I guess that is another important uh, aspect uh, because uh, if you look at the type of uh, problems that uh, organizations need to address today in industry, is a substantially impossible for them to address these type of sustainability problems alone. Uh, so the solution lies uh, in collaborating with others. And uh, we see more and more of this uh, happening in industry. And of course, integration, real integration uh, of ESG factors in decision making uh, at all levels, uh, from the senior management down to uh, operations and supply chain activities. Uh, um, so this is coming on where I'm coming from uh, uh, with, with this definition uh, is, is uh, basically uh, a combination of concepts that have emerged in the last 20 years that, in my opinion, uh, do reflect uh, the modern view of sustainability in business. Fantastic. As somebody who works for a publication called ESG Clarity, I completely understand there's many different definitions for the myriad of terms that are in the responsible investment world now. Um, so you, you're recommending that sustainability is treated as, as an integral part of business rather than a secondary cost, something that I completely agree with. Um, but can you explain how you come to that conclusion from the research in, uh, that you made in with your book? 
So I, I guess uh, um, it, it's kind of both uh, academic research and uh, uh, evidence uh, from practice that uh, you know led me to uh, this conclusion that uh, real integration is uh, is key for uh, uh, for success. Um, and uh, I guess when we speak about uh, sustainability strategies, uh, you know, immediately. <laughs> we introduce a barrier, immediately we make a mistake uh, because it seems that, that sustainability strategies are you know, something different from real strategies. Um, and uh, uh, I think this is uh, something that is going to change uh, in, in, in the future. Um, you know, if, if you look at uh, where sustainability sits today in organizations, uh, most likely there is a problem. Uh, very often uh, is in marketing departments, uh, very often uh, is in communication departments, uh, uh, at times is linked to innovation or, or finance. Uh, while, uh, you know, in my uh, opinion, uh, sustainability should be, you know, in the, uh, should be sitting uh, in, uh, in the strategy teams in, in organizations uh, where, you know, you can really um, uh, uh, make uh, this uh, integration of the ESG factors uh, in, uh, in decision-making real uh, uh, when it's there. Um, so I uh, believe uh, that uh, um, for organizations, uh, it is uh, uh, very, very important to, um, uh, have to understand, that, first of all, how they can uh, uh, build uh, a very sound business case for sustainability, because there is uh, evidence in research that the companies that, that uh, are able to produce a very clear business case for sustainability, then they are better able uh, to uh, develop uh, sound strategies uh, and they are better able to execute these strategies. So ultimately they perform better. So the business case, a very strong business case, uh, is, uh, uh, is very important. Uh, second, uh, in order to integrate the sustainability into the business strategy, it means that you have uh, a process where the two planning processes align. So this means you can't develop a business plan and then you develop a sustainability strategy. The two things need to go in, in parallel. Um, and uh, um, to give you a very practical example of uh, what I mean by alignment, uh, I refer to, to the fact that uh, if you look at uh, uh, the strategic plans uh, of uh, uh, organizations, very often uh, there are some key uh, you know, elements in this plan. They could, for example, uh, uh, focus uh, on entering new markets uh, or they could uh, focus on uh, uh, increasing uh, uh, margins, or they could focus on cutting costs, whatever. Um, a sustainability agenda, a sustainability plan should help with these objectives. So if the, if the objective of an organization is uh, to enter new markets, uh, the sustainability agenda should be designed in a way to help the organization to enter new markets. Uh, if, uh, uh, for example, uh, the focus of the organization uh, is uh, uh, on launching new products and services, uh, again, the sustainability strategy should help with that. Um, if you are able to create this type of uh, uh, alignment, uh, at that point, uh, uh, sustainability is not uh, anymore something separate, is an integral part of business thinking and strategic planning. 
Um, and uh, uh, I think the good news is that uh, this is more and more happening. I mean, we've seen we've seen companies um, make a little progress in terms of their attitudes towards sustainability. Um, we've seen a lot more announcements recently, and I think as, as COP26 approaches, companies realise they need to step up. But what what big steps do we need to see be taken, whether that's by policymakers or com uh, or companies? in terms of really tackling climate change and, and taking it really seriously? So, uh, first of all, let me say, I, I guess uh, maybe uh, it is uh, fair to say that uh, we have seen a uh, uh, relatively small change in industry overall. But at the same time, we have uh, also seen some companies taking the sustainability very seriously in the last decade. and. Uh, uh, today, you can easily recognize the sustainability leaders in industry, in different industries. Um, so I, I guess that is, you know, is a starting point for this conversation, because, uh, of course, uh, uh, a key driver uh, for companies to engage more um, uh, uh, with sustainability is competition. And uh, today, what is happening is that the companies in industry start feeling a lot of pressure from a variety of stakeholders but of course they are feeling pressure from competitors because they realize that some companies started working on this years ago and now there is a gap between their performance and the performance of competitors so this is you know becoming a uh, a massive uh, uh, stimulus uh, for uh, companies to engage more uh, with, with sustainability. Uh, in terms of you know, uh, what uh, is going to happen in the next uh, years, uh, I believe that what is going to happen is that um, sustainability is going to affect significantly competition in industry, uh, virtually uh, all of them. And this means that uh, um, some companies uh, will benefit uh, in, in the short and medium term uh, of the impact of their sustainability strategies. Uh, and some companies uh, are going to experience uh, some big problems because they didn't engage uh, in a meaningful way with sustainability until now. So I believe there's a gap between the leaders and uh, uh, the laggards is going to uh, become bigger in the years coming. Um, I guess uh, uh, in terms of the practical actions that uh, companies need to consider in order to uh, integrate uh, sustainability in, in the business, uh, uh, I think a very important action uh, is uh, to link uh, uh, incentives uh, and the reward uh, uh, systems uh, uh, at the senior management level. Uh, if you, you know, if you want to drive, uh, uh, you know, real change in organizations, uh, make sure that uh, uh, the bonus of senior executives uh, is linked uh, to your objectives, including sustainability objectives, and that becomes a big driver for for change. Um, and uh, in, in the last few years, we have seen more and more, you know, examples of companies that are uh, introducing, uh, you know, ESG criteria and linking the ESG criteria to the performance of senior executives. I believe just uh, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, there was an announcement made uh, from uh, uh, Starbucks uh, that was basically introducing this practice. 
Um, so I believe this is, uh, is, is, is going to happen more and more, and it is, you know, uh, a very important uh, change. Uh, I, I guess the second change uh, will be uh, an organizational one. Um, uh, if you today look at uh, 10 different companies uh, chosen randomly, you will realize that uh, sustainability is organized in a very different way in these uh, 10 companies. Um, and I believe I said this at the beginning uh, of the podcast that you, know, you have uh, uh, sustainability teams in marketing departments, uh, sustainability teams in uh, uh, communication departments, uh, sustainability teams uh, in operations. Um, I believe that uh, today uh, companies uh, uh, realize that uh, sustainability is uh, something strategic. And what this means is that uh, it should be, first of all, uh, in the agenda of boards. And uh, uh, in my opinion, the sustainability directors should uh, be reporting directly to the CEO uh, of organizations. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I, I believe that uh, you should, uh, uh, you know, I, I believe that organizations are going more and more to integrate formally uh, sustainability thinking uh, in strategic planning processes. Uh, uh, and this means that, that slowly sustainability will move uh, in strategy departments, uh, uh, which is in my opinion, where sustainability should be. Great, well, I think there's some really good action steps that um, hopefully corporates listen to and um, move on. Like you, well, I, I feel like I've said quite a few times over the past, yeah, if you don't take action, then you will be left behind in terms of the companies. But it might it sounds like it's already too late for some with that that gap appearing already. Um, I, I think it is, Natalie, uh, for for one reason that uh, uh, introducing the sustainability in a business uh, is a very complex uh, process uh, and it takes a huge amount of time. So sustainability is a journey; is not a project. It's not something that you can you know introduce in the business with the objective of becoming sustainable in three years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is a, is a, is a something that is going to take uh, decades, uh, and uh, uh, is is a, is a, is a is a very you know uh, long-term game um, so I, I believe uh, you know some companies uh, who are starting this conversation today are very late in their industries yes I uh, completely agree well um, thank you so much for your time Paolo it's been so interesting talking to you thank you very much Natalie pleasure thank you Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.